for some of you, this has been the first time you've ever probably had your hands on a hymnal in quite a while, and uh, we have some technical difficulties that are beyond our control this morning, and so we appreciate your understanding that uh, things have not gone as planned, but not as our plans, but as you'll see, uh, I believe this must be an illustration that God has given me uh, to use and to point that out about His sovereignty. I just want to say one more thing, if I could ask for prayer. Um, I um, am going to be leaving on Tuesday of this week with uh, Joyce and Catherine. We're going to be driving over to Ohio to see our son John for a few days. And then we're going to make our way to West Virginia. And my mother, Lord willing, is going to be transitioning from the home she's lived in where I grew up uh, into a senior complex. As you know, that's not an easy thing to do. And uh, so I think it's going to be a very emotional time for us. I sorely miss my dad at this point and just a lot of issues that I think are going to be facing us. So we appreciate your prayer for travel and for grace as we uh, address these things and uh, deal with the needs of our family. Um, That is not a reason to miss church next week. Uh, So I will be asking for an attendance and know who's here, who's not here. And our brother Steve Macero will be handling the word, I'm sure, in a very effective way. So uh, you'll be pray for us. Let's pray. Father, we do surrender to you. It is the logical, reasonable, spiritual worship to say, Lord, we are yours. Everything we have, everything we desire, our bodies, Lord, we just give them to you in light of the amazing mercies that you've shown to us in the gospel. Father, today, as we've already sensed that you've been trying to get our attention today by things not operating the way that we have planned, we pray that you would help us to learn this important principle about who you are, that you are the God who is in control. And so we ask that you would have your way among us during our time as we look into your word. I pray that you would help me as we try to unpack a lot of challenging thoughts and really sort of stretch the limits of our understanding. We look, Lord, to your Holy Spirit to help us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Rabbi Kushner, Rabbi Kushner and his wife were living comfortably in Massachusetts back in the 1960s until they had that terrible news that their son, Aaron, was diagnosed with a premature aging disease called progeria. Although their son, Aaron, was only in middle school, his body began to exhibit symptoms that are found in those people who live six, seven, eight decades, people in their 70s and 80s. And sadly enough, their son, Aaron, died of old age at the age of 14 years old. Now, Rabbi Kushner and his wife, as any loving parent would, felt tremendous, tremendous agonizing sadness and loss. And years later, Rabbi Kushner wrote a book in an attempt to make sense of this tragedy that he and his wife had experienced. And he did so based on his understanding of the book of Job. The book, entitled When Bad Things Happen to Good People, was written with the conclusion that Kushner draws that the author of the book of Job was forced 
to choose between a good God who is not totally powerful. That's option number one. Good God, but he's not totally powerful. Or a powerful God who's not totally good. And according to Kushner, the writer of Job chose to believe in God's goodness. And so he went on to claim that God, quote, wants the righteous people, like you and me, let's say, to live peaceful, happy lives. But sometimes even he cannot bring that about. This is his conclusion. He goes on to say, it is too difficult even for God to keep cruelty and chaos from claiming innocent victims. Unquote. Now listen, let me just say first of all, my heart goes out to Rabbi Kushner and his wife. I cannot stand and say I know what they've gone through. But when you take your understanding of that tragedy and you put it out in a public book like that that was very much of a bestseller in its day, then we can interact with what he has said. And Rabbi Kushner has concluded that God is not sovereign over the events of this life. And that makes me at this point just want to throw out the question to you and me this morning and say, what is your view? What is your view of God? You've lived long enough to see the world and how things are as bad as they are. And you can see evidences of God's goodness certainly around you. I hope you can see that. What is your view? Does God have limited control over creation? Is God benevolent and well-intentioned, but is He weak and unable to bring about His plans and purposes? Are there tragic events of life? Are the tragic events of life best explained by using terms like, quote, misfortune? Or a term like accidental? Or terms like an event of chance? Well, my aim this morning is to lead us through this a brief overview. It is going to be a little longer than normal, but it's a brief overview of a massive topic here this morning in dealing with the biblical doctrine of God's sovereignty. And my approach this morning will be, first of all, to consider the extent of God's sovereignty. We're going to try to look at that as point number one. The second thing we're going to do is look at some mysterious elements and some of the tensions that we deal with as a result of this understanding of what the Bible says about God's sovereignty. And then lastly, we're going to seek to try to uh, lay out some several practical warnings and words of comfort that come because of this great doctrine. So let's first of all look at the affirmation there. Point number one, God is sovereign. And I'm going to leave those blanks empty for a second, and I'll tell you what they are in just a minute. Let's build our case first, then we'll fill them in. I want us to think first of all about some of the names for God that we find in the Bible. As we look at these names, notice now that names for God are not just someone trying to be clever, but the names of God tell us about God's character and what He's like. They reveal the the essence of His nature. And so in Acts 17 we read that God is the Lord of heaven and earth. Lord of heaven and earth. The word Lord there, the title, is a title describing one who has absolute authority. In this case authority over all creation. Another name for God we find in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And I'd like you to turn there in your pew Bible, if you would, or your own Bible. 1 Timothy chapter 6, page 1413. That was part of our scripture reading earlier. 1413. I hope you notice some of these names for God that are found in this amazing text of scripture. In 1 Timothy 6, verse 15, Paul refers to God as the Lord 
over all lords. He is the one who has absolute authority over anybody who has authority, as as it were. And God also is addressed, as we'll find in just a minute, uh, in 1 Timothy chapter 6 as well, He's also addressed the title King, which denotes power and sovereignty, nobility and majesty, not scandal, which we read about in the newspaper with uh, royalty in England. We're talking about power, sovereignty, nobility, majesty. That's the idea of kingship. Psalm 47 says, The Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. And then again, you notice in 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you still got that in front of you, notice it says that God is the king of kings. He is the one who has sovereignty or majesty over all those who also serve as kings in the earth. Uh, He has also given titles like ruler and master. And these titles refer to a person who exerts control over other people and who is endowed with authority to set the standards that others are to follow. For example, in Daniel chapter 4, we read, The Most High is ruler over the realms of mankind. He bestows it on whom he wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men. That was spoken by the king of Babylon, who obviously affirmed that the God of Israel is the true God. First Timothy chapter 6, again, we can notice that, he, that Paul goes on to describe the blessed and only sovereign is a name given to God. And by the use of these names, the writers of Scripture signify that God is the highest in rank and authority. There is none greater than God. He is supreme. He is, the exalt, he is in the exalted place above all of creation. Now let's look at some of the general statements we find. That's the names for God. We could continue on that. But I'm going to move on now to statements we find in Scripture. And here we read that there is no shortage of affirmations of God's sovereignty. Look at Psalm 33, verse 11, where we read, The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart from generation to generation. David wrote in Psalm 103, The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his sovereignty rules over all. Psalm 135, we read, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. Where? In heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all deeps. Sounds familiar with our memory verse. I hope you have somehow put that to memory here. In Psalm 115, I knew I was going to preach on this text. That's why I had us memorizing this verse. The Lord does as He pleases. Psalm 115, verse 3. And King Jehoshaphat, in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, offered a prayer to God and listened to what he says about God as he spoke of him in ways that obviously indicated he knew who the true God was. He says, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? Are you not ruler over all the kingdoms and nations? Power and might are in your hand so that no one can stand against you. No one can stand against the one who is in charge of all the nations of the world. And so God, through his prophet Isaiah, says to his people in Isaiah 46, he says, I am God, there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose 
will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Now, how many of us can say that and have it come true? That what you desire and your pleasures, it's going to be fulfilled. Earlier this week, Tuesdays, Wednesdays, I come up with the order of service and, and put some things into the order of service. Tim contributes a couple. We have worked together. And I had put there's going to be a final song that we're going to have played and put projected on the thing. It's not going to happen. My pleasure, my plans, I have no control over making sure that they're going to happen. Many times it does happen, thankfully. People cooperate, machines work, and it happens. But only God can say that. That His plans and His purposes, He says, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Not just some of it and not just a little bit here and there. Now here's one that I think is very worthwhile. Ephesians chapter 1. I don't know if you're going to have quick enough to find that. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, is a great, great text that speaks of this. And I'll just give you the page number here. I didn't look it up, but Ephesians 1, verse 11, in your pew Bible, is page number 1389. 1389. Here we read this. Believers of Jesus Christ have been predestined according to God's purpose, who works all things. doesn't say some things, doesn't say a few things. Who works all things after the counsel of His will. Now, I'm not going to take time to unpack the word all things, but I've given you some microscopic notes that you can look at later as John Piper unpacks, what does the Scripture in, include in all the things that God has control over? It is a wide variety of issues and, and, and things that happen in this world that are under the control of God who works all things after the counsel of His will. I've also given you notes from the book Trusting God, which I highly commend to you. If you struggle with how you make sense of what's happened and what is happening, Trusting God is an excellent book, biblical book, that helps pull together tremendous amounts of, bi of biblical text. I've given some in your notes there regarding God's sovereignty over people and nations and nature. You need to take the time to read those later and just let your mind begin to grapple with the greatness and the control that God has in accomplishing what? Working all things after the counsel of His will. Now back to your notes again. In answer to the questions, what are the limits of God's rule? Is there any creature or activity that is not under God's government? Paul Washer wrote this response. It's in your notes. The Scripture's answer is clear. Every living being, every created thing, and all events of history are under the sovereign government of God. He rules over all things. No one, including man, is beyond the boundaries of his rule. As creator and sustainer, he has exclusive and unchallenged right to govern all realms and all creatures according to his will and good pleasure. All that he desires, he does. And there is no power in heaven, earth, or hell that can alter or hinder what he has determined. That's, that is a, quite a statement, and, and how broad can you get? Now, that goes back to our notes now. And again, point number one, which we left blank earlier, is God is sovereign. Everything and always. Everything He is sovereign over, and He's always sovereign. 
Everything and always. That is an accurate summary of the biblical teaching of God's sovereignty. If you are struggling with that affirmation, I challenge you, read all those texts in here. Get your, micro, get your uh, little magnifying lens and look up those verses and you look at them yourself and let the Scriptures speak for themselves. The, the, the record is absolutely clear. Now, along with affirming the universal extent of God's sovereignty, you need to hear me out now, because if we're saying that God is sovereign about everything, and I mean everything, it's important to also notice that God's sovereignty is complemented, as we've said earlier, with other character traits and attributes of God, that each one helps to complement and help uh, govern the other attribute. So we would say that God's sovereignty is complemented by His holiness, His goodness, His love, and His wisdom. And that is the book, by the way, Trusting God. That's how he, he unpacks it. God is sovereign, loving, and wise. Those three things all play off each other. And God never abuses His absolute authority. Now that's, that's a different realm than many of us have experienced in this world. I'm aware that many of us, on a human level, we have seen individuals who have gained a large measure of authority. For some of us, you've seen, unfortunately, firsthand, an abusive parent, perhaps. Or you've, you've, you've had some experience of an abusive uh, a spiritual uh, religious worker, if you will. Uh, you've been under someone who's been under an abusive political or military power, or they've had abusive power within the workplace. And there is the tendency that people have, the more authority that they gather to themselves and that they assume for themselves, the more likely are they become and move toward becoming a cruel tyrant and a despot. And our world has seen a number of those, have we not? And we still see them on the stage of our world. But God's sovereign rule is a just rule. It is a rule that is righteous. And He reigns in such a way that His holy will is always carried out. You must understand that when we affirm God's sovereignty over all things. You must get into your mind, I'm not thinking now of a human sovereignty, I'm thinking about God's sovereignty. It's a different category than what we've experienced. Now I could go on and on and on with that point. That could be another two or three sermons. But we're going to move on to point number two. Count your blessings. All right, here we go. God is sovereign, point number two. But in the midst of affirming that, we admit there's, there's mystery and there is wonder. Mystery and wonder. If God has absolute control over all His creation, and we've just said so, can we as humans be held morally responsible? I want that to settle, settle in now into your thinking. If God is absolutely sovereign over everything, can we be held morally responsible as humans? Now, let me say that as we an seek to answer this question, I'll admit to you, we are swimming in deep water. Okay? So, put your life preserver on and, and join me now because I'm going to say I need help in answering these questions. So I appeal to people who are much smarter than I am have much more insight in the scriptures, much more reading of theology and different uh, breadth of knowledge. And they know those scriptures. And here we go. We're going to look in the scriptures as well. But I'm going to look into the insights and draw from the wisdom of J.I. Packer. J.I. Packer wrote a book, which is a classic book years ago, called Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. 
And in this book, he explained that there's a tension between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. And he tries to answer the question, how do we understand these? He says, this is an example, as we look into the Bible, it's an example of what he calls a theological antinomy. Now, that's a new word for many of you. It's probably, it probably was a new word to me. I never heard of it before I read that book, antinomy. But he adds to the, uh, an antinomy, by the way, is a contradiction between conclusions which seem equally logical, reasonable, or necessary. So he says the logical conclusion is, yes, God has to be uh, sovereign over all things, and man has to be responsible, but it looks like we have some uh, clearly, uh, they seem contradictory. So he says, he adds the word, it's an apparent contradiction. It just seems to be contradictory, but it's not contradictory in God's economy, in the way God has set things up. So here's what he says. I'm quoting him now. An antinomy exists when a pair of principles stands side by side, seemingly irreconcilable, yet both undeniable. Man is responsible, on the one hand, he is a responsible moral agent, though he is also divinely controlled. And, and man is divinely controlled, he says, though he also is a responsible moral agent. And they say, let's, let's unpack this in the Bible. Enough of J.I. Packer. You could quote anybody to prove your point. Okay, so here's what we're going to do. I'll give you three examples in Scripture that show an example of this theological antinomy of what appears to be contradictory, but they're both there. Okay, here we go. In the area of evangelism, for example, the Scriptures make clear that it's the responsibility of the church to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ and that we are to make that known, but it is God who saves. So we look at Mark 16, verse 15. Jesus commanded his disciples and said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. We're still moving toward fulfilling that. We've got a long way to go. We've got a lot of languages that we're working on. We've got a lot of people still to reach. But that is what we're commissioned to do. We are to proclaim, preach. Jesus said, No one can come to me, in John 6, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. So no one is going to come to faith, even though they hear the truth. They're not going to come to faith unless the Lord draws them. And so he's, he's involved in that process. Antinomy. Two things happening at the same time, they are not contradictory in God's economy. They seem like humanly they are. Here's another example. Jesus made it clear that Judas was accountable for the evil that he committed in betraying Jesus which is found in Mark 14, where we read, Jesus had said to them, one of you is going to betray me. He comes out with a statement. One of you is going to betray me of the 12. They're all looking at him like, not me. I'm not going to do that. They're all going, not me. It's going to you. Not, not me. And they're all like having this big discussion among themselves. And then he goes on to say this uh, two verses later. The Son of Man is to go, that is, he's going to be betrayed. He's going to go just as it is written of him, but woe! To that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. What's he saying? You talk about responsibility. Anybody who does that kind of despicable, evil act, they're going to be held accountable. So he's saying, Judas, you're going to stand on your two legs, you're going to be accountable for that. But watch this. In Acts 1.16, Peter quotes the scriptures that predicted that Jesus, sorry, that Judas would be betrayed, sorry, that Judas was going to betray Jesus, and that this was God's sovereign plan. 
He says this, Acts 1. Brethren, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. What's he saying? This was God's divine plan that he would do this. It had to be fulfilled. Woe to the person that does that. Both exist. Both are working at the same time. Can I explain it? Mystery. Mystery. One more example. Turn in your pew Bible to Philippians chapter 2, page 1396. The bottom of page 1396 in your pew Bible. Philippians 2. This is Paul writing to the believers in Philippians. Philippi. And in his admonition to them, watch both elements included in this challenge to them. He says, verse 12, So then, beloved, beloved, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He doesn't say work for your salvation. He says work it out. Once you're a believer, you need to think through the implications of that and apply the gospel to many areas of your life. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That's a call to believers to be responsible to do as God tells you to do in his word. But then keep reading. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So he's saying God is sovereignly at work in you and in me to accomplish his purposes. Both are going on. You need to be responsible. God is sovereign. That's what the scriptures teach. And so I say God is the potter. He creates and fashions us. He has control over us. But we are his clay pots, as it were. And we must not abdicate our responsibility to do what the scriptures command. That's our responsibility. And if we affirm God's sovereignty, we are not saying you are not responsible for what you choose to do, to think, to act, and what you choose to say. You're responsible. You can't blame it on God. Say, well, this is just part of God's sovereign plan for me, and that's, you know, that's why I did what I did. Judge. It's not going to hold up. So we say we are responsible. On the other hand, we must not think too highly of ourselves to think that we are really in control of things. God is the supreme sovereign ruler of the universe, and he does as he pleases. So that Romans 11 says, God has mercy on whom he desires. He hardens whom he desires. And you will say to me, he says, he expecting somebody to object to that. Wait a minute, you mean God could sovereignly choose to give mercy to one and and not mercy to another, he says, wait a minute. Somebody's going to say, well, why does God still find fault? Why does he hold people responsible if he's acting sovereignly in the world? For who resists God's will, the text says. On the contrary, again, I'm reading from Romans 11, verse 18 and following. On the contrary, who are you? This is Paul's answer. Who are you, old man, who answers back to God? That'll, that'll shut you up. Who are you to answer back to God and question what he does or doesn't do regarding his sovereignty and somehow think you're not responsible. You are responsible and he's sovereign. The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use, another for common use? God can do whatever he chooses. Remember, he can do whatever he pleases. Psalm 115.3. But we are responsible for whatever we choose to do ourselves. We must be careful not to stand in judgment of our sovereign king. That's a danger. 
Too many people try to find fault with God and His sovereignty. He's God. That's what God does. He does whatever He pleases. And no one can hinder or thwart His plans. On the other hand, we must avoid being irresponsible and not doing what God commands us to do and urges us to do and warns us to avoid. We must do the things. And that, that leaves us, my friends, with a sense of wonder and with a sense of awe and mystery. I cannot fully explain. We live in that tension all the time. That's where you belong. That's what the Bible teaches. And so I find that's where we sort of need to come down on that deep issue. Now that brings us to our third point here. I'm just summarizing things that are so broad and so uh, massive in their challenging uh, depth, but we're just going to uh, go to the practical aspect here and not just speak to our heads, we're going to speak to our hearts. Point number three, God is sovereign. And here we come to a warning. When we affirm God's sovereignty, we are warning some people. And we also are giving words of comfort to others when we affirm God's sovereignty. First of all, let me be very clear. It comes as a word of warning because no one, and I mean no one, no one will ever successfully defy or oppose the king of the universe. Period. If you are attempting to do such, you better be warned. The king of the universe will bring about significant consequences in keeping with his just nature to anybody who is not willing to abide by his standards, his rule, his reign, and who wants to go in their own direction and be their own little mini-king, their own little mini-god, and he will hold you accountable to that because, let me tell you something, if you're going to rebel against his reign, you're going to suffer serious consequences. Stephen Charnock, who wrote that massive book, which I find to be, he had a hundred pages to God's sovereignty. I didn't read them all. A hundred pages in meditating on God's sovereignty. He says this, Every sin against the sovereign lawgiver is worthy of death. God's dominion cannot be despised without meriting the greatest punishment. Isaiah 10, verse 3, is a verse where God issues this warning to people who somehow think they can defy God's sovereignty and His kingship. He says, Now what will you do in the day of punishment? Sounds like that song they used to sing on uh, Cops. What you going to do? What you going to do when they come for you? Right? This is like the Old Testament version of that. Sorry, that just came to my mind. Now, what will you do in the day of punishment? This is not funny. I mean, this is like, we laugh at it, but I mean, it's just so pitiful when people think they can outrun the king of the universe. What will you do in the day of punishment and in the devastation which will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help? Where are you going to go for help if you're running away from the king of the universe? There is no greater, there is no one greater than God who will protect you and assist you in your vain attempt to try to somehow escape the punishment on that day of great accountability. Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8 warns us in this way, don't be deceived, God is not mocked. In other words, you can't pull one over on God. You can't sort of do something he doesn't know about. Whatever man sows, this he will reap. For the one who's sown, who, who sows to his own flesh from the flesh will reap corruption. And so I say again, 
you will never trump God. You ever done that in a card game? We used to play Rook. You could trump somebody. That card will take anything. You'll never trump God. His reign extends over all of creation. And either you will submit to Him now, willingly, or you will submit to Him in that final day. And you'll be compelled to submit to Him where the Bible says every knee of those who are in heaven... I love it how Paul expands on this. He just says, every knee. Okay, I want to make this very clear for you. Every knee of any creature that's in heaven, every knee of any person who's ever lived on earth, and every knee of whoever's under the earth. I don't know what under the earth means, but I mean he's covering the whole gamut. Maybe he means even those in hell. Everybody is going to bend their knee, and they're going to, with their tongue, they're going to confess, Jesus, you are Lord. You are master in control of everything. You're the king of the universe. It's going to happen sometime. And so it's a word of warning, I say again. Proverbs 21.30. There is no wisdom. There's no human scheme. There's no human genius. And no understanding and no counsel against the Lord. Whatever you're thinking and scheming, it's not going to work, my friend. It is not going to work. So what's the point? The point is stop scheming and stop thinking you're going to escape it and submit to Him. And say, Lord Jesus... I yield to you. I have nowhere else to run. I have nowhere else to hide. You made me. I belong to you. And I have not honored you. Therefore, I yield to you. I come to Jesus Christ to rescue me from my sin. And therefore, I want to see my life lived for you, not to run away from you and run my own foolish way. It's not too late, my friend. But there will be a day it is too late. And I don't know when that day is going to be. Neither do you. It's a word of warning. Come to Christ. Come to Christ. On the other hand, the doctrine of the sovereignty of God, it is equipping us in many ways with comfort. And the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and salvation provides a solid foundation for assurance. A solid foundation for assurance. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, on the one hand, if you're talking about unrepentant sinners, it's a source of great concern and alarm. But if you're talking about the sovereignty of God for believers, it's a wonderful consolation for children of God. Wonderful. And since God is infinite in power, it is impossible to withstand His will. It's impossible to resist the outworking of God's decrees that He intends to do something. He's going to do it. So Jesus said with this in mind, He says in John 10, speaking of His relationship with His sheep, as the shepherd, good shepherd, He says, My sheep hear My voice. I know them, and they follow Me. And I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. There's no wiggle room there. They will never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. So he says, my hand is so strong, no one will ever remove them from his sheep. Then he says this, my father who has given them to me is greater than all. Here's the king of the universe. Well, of course, Jesus is too. But he's talking about the Father. He says, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Guess what, my friend? you got both the Father's hand and Jesus' hand. He's talking in figurative language here, of course. But he's saying there is security in the God who has called those of his own and those that he's purchased and those who are the children of God. They are secure in that, in the salvation that he has wrought. And Paul affirmed the same thing. 
in Romans 8, a great text of Scripture. Again, I urge you to read that whole chapter and get the flow of it. He affirms the same thing by insisting that nothing can separate a true believer from the love of Christ. Nothing. And he thinks of all the worst-case scenarios that can possibly happen in this world. That's not going to remove you from the love of Christ. Then we read in Romans 8, 29, and 30. Those whom God foreknew, God also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son. Notice who's acting here. It is God who foreknew, God who predestined, and those whom He predestined, these He also called, and whom He called, these He also justified, and whom He justified, these He also glorified. What's He saying? He's saying no one and nothing is able to undo God's work of redemption in Jesus Christ. If God begins it, He's going to end it. Why? I can't say it's because I'm strong enough in my faith. But I can say this, I'm confident because God's sovereign. And no one thwarts Him. And what He begins, He ends with. He finishes it. Because nobody's greater than He is. It is a wonderful comfort, my friend. The more you understand the sovereignty of God in redemption and salvation, the more you feel like, I am safe in the arms of a mighty God who has saved me for himself. It's not because I'm doing the right thing, not because I've made tremendous strides in my faith, not because I seem like I'm such a godly person. No, my confidence is in Christ. Because he says that no one can snatch them out of his hand. Do you see that, my friend? The sovereignty of God is used in Scripture primarily to speak to people often who were suffering for their faith because it looked like Satan was throwing them everything in the world, even destroying their own life and saying, what's going to happen to us? And so the writers of Scripture would say, listen here, God called you, God predestined, God uh, also is the one who justified you, God's the one who will glorify you. Rest in that, rest in that. There's great comfort. Oh boy. I want to preach a whole sermon on that one. Let's keep going. Number two. God's sovereignty also provides consolation in times of affliction. Now, I'm sure that doesn't apply to anybody here. We don't have problems, do we? Nobody suffers in this room, I'm sure. We're, you know, of course we suffer. We're not Christian scientists who somehow think that suffering is somewhere in your mind. You're just thinking the wrong things. We, We all know we suffer. Listen to this insight from one of the Puritans. As he said, he talks about God's suffering and our sufferings. God's sovereignty and our sufferings. Uh, before we do that, let me just give you a turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians 3. Those who are still awake, yes, you move your Bible, and you, this is where you open your... 1404, Pew Bible. 1404, bottom of the page. Fourteen oh four. listen to this. I'm going to read a quote, and then I'm going to show you why this quote is true. The Puritan writer said this, How blessed to know that our afflictions come not by chance, nor from the devil, but are ordained and ordered by God. This is going to blow your mind. If you get your heart around this, you understand this principle. You're going to see your hardships through a whole new lens, a whole new perspective. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3, where Paul says, No man should be moved or let's upset or thrown off 
course, if you will. No man should be moved or upset by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we have been destined for this. What's he saying? God's in control. God is sovereign even over these afflictions. Now, I don't have time to tell you two more stories, but I've given you on the back of your notes, don't read them now, on the back of your notes, two excellent little meditations by Elizabeth Elliot on this principle of God is sovereign over your afflictions and uses Jesus as an example of that to show that in his most evil, the most evil day of his life when he was suffering on that cross was part of God's ordained plan of sovereignty that he was to go undergo that. If that's true of Jesus, can't we say that's true of us? You read it, you decide. All right, number three. Biblical doctrine of God's absolute control over all things is a great help also in overcoming what many of us continually struggle with, and that's anxiety. Worrying, worrying, worrying. Most of us, most of the times when we are stressing out with, with, with anxiety and we're worrying about so many things, about our future, about our plans now, about what's going on, and, oh, we're all upset, blah, blah, blah. we've lost sight of the wonderful truth that God reigns. If you are confident that God is reigning and in control, that's going to bring your level of anxiety way down. Because what's the point of being so anxious about it? God's in control. I'm not saying you need to be irresponsible. I'm not saying don't do what you're supposed to be doing. But I am saying you need to reduce the level of unnecessary worry in proportion to your understanding and reliance upon the sovereign reign of God in every area of life. God's in control. Worrying is the fruit of not trusting in a sovereign God and His all-wise plans and purposes. And so we read in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, Humble yourselves therefore under what? The mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time. Mighty hand of God is an Old Testament symbol which tells us of God's what? Controlling power. God has that power that controls everything. He says, so submit yourself under God's controlling power and know that God's timing is perfect and His plans are perfect. As He says right there, He'll lift you up at the proper time. At His time, He knows what He's doing. So we have to submit to His timing and His control. And the more we trust the God who sovereignly reigns over the situations we face, the more we'll hand over our cares into the hands of the person who cares for us and who is sovereignly in control. Easy to do? I mean, sorry, easy to say? It's hard to do, right? It's hard to do. I struggle with that myself. All right, number four. Sovereignty of God ought to promote humility in our hearts. Promote humility in our hearts. Charles Bridges once noted how pride lifts up one's heart against God to the point where we begin to contend for supremacy with God. In other words, pride begins to make us think that, well, I want my will. I want my things to be done. What, who are you to have this way in my life? It's like we want to contend with God. We want to be God. That's what pride longs for. So pride aspires to the status and the position of God. It refuses to acknowledge our dependence upon God. 
And the more you study the doctrines of grace, where you think through and try to grapple with the election of God, the calling of God, the just work of justification that God does, and the work of perseverance that God works within us, the more you should find your pride diminishing. So much so that if you read carefully 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you will find it true that what Mark Webb said is definitely true about your understanding of how God works in salvation. We read this, Mark Webb. God intentionally designed salvation so that no one can boast of it. Nobody. God did not merely arrange salvation so that boasting would be discouraged. He planned it so that boasting would be absolutely excluded. You say, what are you talking about? Well, read 1 Corinthians 1, verse 18 and following, and you're going to find that there's thing after thing he mentions there, people who were, could not get along with each other, who were in all these little groups that couldn't get along, with, lots of division. I'm of this group, I'm in this group. Bunch of pride, proudful people. So what does Paul do? Let's go back to the gospel and let's say, what are you doing bragging about how good you are because you're associated with somebody who's associated with somebody? Get off all that. If you understand the gospel, he says this. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. By God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. There's nothing to boast about. There's nothing to boast about. You say, well, yeah, but I... Oh, he goes on to say, so that there's no boasting before God. No boasting. And so the more you understand God's sovereignty, the more you're going to find yourself knocking down one more notch on that pride scale. If you really understand God's sovereignty and salvation, you begin to realize, I've got nothing to brag about when I get to heaven. When I get to heaven, I'm not going to say, you know, I made all the right choices in life. No, you're not. You're going to say what? I don't deserve to be here. I'm still filled with mystery wonder at the amazing grace that's been shown to a wretched sinner like me. And I'm looking forward to 10 billion years singing the praise of my Savior. Because why? Because finally pride's going to get knocked out of you and you're finally be glorified and you're going to realize the greatness of God and His grace and His sovereign plan for you. That's another sermon. Okay, number five. If you pondered and reflect upon God's sovereignty, hopefully your hearts are going to be drawn in upward praise, which I just touched on right there. You're going to be having your hearts lifted out of yourself and making so much of yourself and being so concerned with yourself and your plans and your position. and you, you know, Get yourself out of yourself and get into thinking about the greatness of God and praise Him. He is sovereign over all. Now, here's what I want you to do. I want you to find your way to Psalm 95. We're almost done, folks. Hang in with me. Psalm 95, when everybody's got it in your hands, either a pew Bible, page 722, or if you got it in your own Bible, that's fine. If you don't have the right translation, it's not going to work. So get your pew Bible. I'm sorry. I just remembered that. Psalm 95, page 722, in your pew Bible. Everybody needs to have a copy in front of you. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I'm going to ask us to stand, and we're going to read these verses. And this is going to be our exclamation. That's right. Go ahead, go ahead, stand. Some of you are looking forward to stretching anyway. We're going to make this our affirmation about God and His greatness. He's the King over all. We are not. And therefore, we want to give praise to Him. Okay? So let's read verses 1 through 7. We're going to stop when we get to verse 7. 
we're going to stop with the word hand, okay? The sheep of his hand, they were done. We're not going to keep going because it goes off another topic, okay? Let's, sing, let's say this together. It's okay if you say it a little loudly like you really mean it, okay? You don't have to whisper. This is not a library, okay? Oh, come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully to him with songs. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods, in whose hand are the depths of the earth, the peaks of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, and it was he who made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our Maker. For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Amen? Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. To you, O God, the King of the universe, we affirm once again, We are not those who reign in this world. This world is yours, and we are yours, and everything in all creation in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, wherever it may be. Lord, we agree together that you're the king and sovereign Lord over all. Father, I pray today that as we've tried to set forth this very powerful statement of your character. I pray that you, Holy Spirit, will apply these things to every heart that is here today. For those who are full of pride, Lord, I pray that you would bring them to the point where they humble themselves, where they will do what the text says. They will bow down. They will kneel before the Lord, their God, and confess that they are not king and yield to you, surrendering to you. Even today, Lord, I pray that there might be somebody who would say, Lord Jesus, I need a Savior because I've been duped all my life thinking I can save myself and run the world the way I want to run it. Somehow escape you. So, Lord, I pray that you would bring them to Christ even this day. And, Lord, for the rest of us who suffer with anxiety and with pride, and those of us, Lord, who are insecure about our relationship with you and our standing before you, who don't know that security, Lord, for others of us who find ourselves uh, under the weight of affliction and sufferings and we're, we, it draws, we become withdrawn from you and we question you, Lord, I pray, may we find comfort in these truths. May we learn to appreciate you as sovereign Lord and also remain responsible for what you call us to do as we trust in Jesus who cleanses us from all sin and who's coming back someday according to your sovereign plan and will be exalted and every knee will bow and every tongue confess him as Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.